Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And remember, it is the book of Revelation, singular, the revelation given unto Jesus by the Father for the church. Um, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. This book is about the Lord and our Savior. Um, it talks about the Antichrist, but the book is not about the Antichrist. Amen? This book is about Jesus Christ. And how many are looking for Jesus Christ tonight? Amen. I'm looking for the return of Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. And so in chapter 1 of verse 19, Jesus speaking to the apostle John said, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. All right? Uh, that word hereafter is metatauta. And we only see that word four times in the whole of the New Testament. And another place where we see that word is over in um, chapter 4. And, and it says... Uh, After this, I looked, chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Okay, metatata, or tata, tatao. I know a little bit of Greek makes a mean gyro but uh, that's about all I know come up here and I will show thee things which must be hereafter all right so the Lord in his wonderful wisdom has given us the division of the book in verse 19 right the things which are or the things which you have seen the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter all right so the division of the book is that simple. And the problem that we have in the church through thousands, hundreds, hundreds of years of history at least, you know, is that people try to take the things that are hereafter and they try to put them in the things that are in the are. And they try to take the things that thou hast seen and they try to put them in the hereafter. If you leave the things where the things should be, there's no problem with this book. Amen. And the things which thou hast seen is chapter 1. That's the vision that John saw of Jesus. All right? The things which are here, which are, which are, the things which are, is the church. And the churches are found in chapters 2 and chapter 3. All right? And then we see... In chapter 4, John heard a voice, and he said, Come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And it says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. So then John is taken up to heaven, and there's the scene of the throne room, chapters 4 and 5, and from that point, 
the Lord begins to show John the hereafter. So the hereafter is chapters 6 through 19, 20, 21, and 22. All right? And so that is the way the book is divided. Now grab your Bible and go to chapter 19. I'm just dividing the, the word of truth for you here tonight, just making it a little simple. All right? Now... Chapter 19 is where Jesus comes back. And in chapter 20, he reigns for a thousand years. All right. Chapter 21 and 22 are the new things where the Lord makes a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. So if you take the, the, this book alone with just if Jesus came back today, you've got some 2,000 years of, of church history, seven years of tribulation, and another 1,000 years of the millennial reign, you know, in 22 chapters, you've got like, you know, over 3,000 years in one book, okay? And that's why it's important to keep things in the right place, all right? So the tribulation would be through chapter 6, through chapter 19, all right? But we are in the things that are, which is the churches. You know, the funny thing about this book is nowhere in the, in the rest of the book do you see the word church appear, all right? The church is not present in chapter 6 through 19. It's just not there. So we are in, we've done chapter 1. We did a little bit of chapter 2 last week. So we are studying the seven churches. We are studying the section of the things that are, all right? And we looked at, uh, we got into a little bit of Ephesus last week, and we saw verse 2, chapter 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? So Ephesus was an actual church. It was a local church. All right. And then we saw where he says in verse seven, he that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the what churches plural. All right. So not only was this letter specifically intended for Ephesus, but these letters were circulated all through the churches. All right. So there was um, lessons to be learned not only to Ephesus, but for all the churches. And then he also said there in verse 7, he that has a what? An ear. How many people in this room have an ear tonight? I have an ear. We have ears. So it also has a personal application. So the letters are not just for a, a, a church that was you know, long ago or churches that were, you know, in the, in the history books, there is a personal application to these letters to us as well. All right. So and we also saw that each letter, when we think about the region, um, would it be too much trouble to put that map back up, honey? We saw in the region that there were lots of powerful churches 
that the Lord had raised up in Jerusalem, Antioch, and different places across, across the map there. But the Lord cho chose to, these specific churches in Asia Minor. And um, Asia Minor was like the gateway between East and West. That's where East and West met. And if you study, if you're a history buff, you know that that area there has seen a lot of action where East was trying to take West and West was trying to take East. It's, it's almost like a bridge, all right? And we know that the Lord gave Paul a vision when he was about to go into Asia with the gospel, the Lord called out to him from the man of Macedonia and said, come over here and help us. And so the Lord guided Paul and he took a left-hand turn when he was going to take a right-hand turn, and he went into the area of uh, Macedonia, and he started the church in, in Thessalonica and the Corinthian church. And so that was when the gospel first moved into Europe, all right? So it's a very strategic place. But not only is it strategic, but these specific churches, when you see what God has spoken to them, prophetically, we get a historical picture of the church history. Um, the church of Ephesus is the apostolic age of the church, which goes to about the first hundred years of church history or before John the Apostle died, around 96 AD, 100 AD, give or take. All right, then you have the church of Smyrna, which is for the next 300 years where the church suffered serious persecution. Any of you ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? Great book, recommended Christian reading. A lot of the more serious persecutions of the church happened in these next 300 years. All right? And um, that's when Nero and, and all the different you know, when he lost his mind and began to burn Christians at the stake to light his garden up for, for the garden parties. Um, so that was the persecuted church. And then you have the church in Pergamos, and prophetically, this showed the picture of the married to the world church. This is when the um, papacy just started to get a foothold in history, where there was starting to become a, a priesthood, and things be, and they started to, you know, this is when Constantine came on the scene and said, hey, we're not going to persecute the Christians anymore. I'm actually going to make Christians the state religion. So around 350 AD, that's when the church began to all of a sudden start compromising. And instead of actually requiring people to be born again to be saved, they actually had to declare themselves as Christians to hold a state office or to have any, any um, place in the, you know, in, in, the, in the kingdom of, you know, like a government job, basically. And so, and so things begin to get watered down. Um, this is when a lot of the different barbarian practices became Christian holidays. And so then after that, we have the Church of Thyatira, and this is when things really begin to get dark. In, in church history between about 500 and 1500 AD. This is like when the papacy was in full um, swing with the Spanish Inquisitions and the different things and the Jesuits when people begin to torture and 
and, and, and they did that because a lot of people, they had the scriptures and the papacy did not want them to have the Bible. They wanted to have control of the scriptures. And so they would persecute and they would re and people didn't recant um, and say, we're going to do it the Pope's way. Then you were put on this. You were put on the rack. So this was a very what they call the medieval part of history. This was a very dark time in church history. And Thyatira speaks of that history. And then you have the Reformation, which came in the Church of Sardis. And that's when, you know, we all know the story of Martin Luther. And uh, that's when they begin to realize that salvation was not because you belong to the church. Salvation came by faith. Amen. Salvation comes by faith not by membership, all right? And for, you know, a thousand years during the papacy, they would try to scare people into submission because if they weren't part of the church, then they were going to hell. And if you didn't do what they were saying, they would kick you out of the church, all right? So then, you know, they realized when the scriptures begin to come back from the Antioch and from the Byzantine Empire, because when the Muslims invaded and pushed into Europe, the Greek scriptures, they went into Upper Europe, and that's when people like Luther and Whitecliffe begin to read the Greek scriptures and realize that the things that they had been taught in the papacy all this time were wrong. And they had a big wake-up call, and they said, the Catholic Church is teaching heresy. We're saved by faith. And then that's when the persecutions began and started even more. And that's the Reformation. And that talks about the Sardis Church. And then prophetically, we have the Church of Philadelphia, which we call the Missionary Church or the Church in Revival. And this is in the 18, from the 1800s on when we had great revivals. Like the Great Awakening, number one that we had in America. The Great Awakening, number two. You know, the, the Whitfields and the Wesleys. And, and we have, uh, 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 oh, what was his name? The guys that went into India and Africa, Livingstone. And you had Boehner and all these different great missionaries that went all over the world bringing the true gospel of faith in Jesus Christ to the world. And that was the Church of Philadelphia. And then we have the final church here, the Laodicean church, which represents an apostate church, a church that has gone lukewarm, that has turned to the things of this world, riches, fame, all the different stuff. They become lukewarm. And the sad thing about it is they don't even know it. All right. And that is the state of the church prophetically before the Lord's return. All right. So as we study these letters, you'll see um, how this prophetic timeline carries on. And the neat thing is, is if these letters were arranged in any different way, you would not have this prophetic timeline of church history. All right. And so the Holy Spirit deemed it necessary to put these churches in a specific order. And we are in the first one, which is the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus means desired one, all right, um, or espoused. And we saw that the church 
was mighty in works. Jesus said, I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. The Ephesians tested doctrine. They did not let the wolves come in and try to steal the sheep with false doctrine. We saw last week, Paul warned them that when he left Ephesus, he was there three years teaching them day and night, publicly and from house to house. And he said, I have not held back the whole counsel of God. I honestly believe Paul took them through the Bible and he preached from cover to cover and did not hold back anything from them. And he said, now I'm innocent, but when I leave, there's going to be people coming in that are going to try to take away what I've given you. And the, the Ephesians were very good at keeping the church pure in their doctrine. And so, and Jesus, he commends them for that, all right? So they were very good at this. And notice here, Jesus says, each letter says, has a, has a uh, identifier or description of Jesus in his glory that John saw in the Patmos vision in chapter one. And the, vi the, the, the thing that he uses to describe himself to Ephesus is, is he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And chapter one told us that the stars are the angels or the messengers of the church. Some people think that that is, you know, pastors. Um, I like what Vernon McGee said. He said, I don't mind if people want to call pastors angels. He says, I've heard them be called a lot worse in my lifetime. <laughs> so, you know, some people think that he's talking about the, the pastors or the actual, you know, leaders of the church there or an actual you know, an angel that watches over the church. And, um, and notice he says also the golden candlesticks, which are the church. And we've said before, Revelation, if, if there is an interpretation to be given on, a, on something that has a symbol, he always shows us what, he, what he's talking about. And he showed us that the seven stars are the, um, the angels in his right hand in the candlesticks are the seven churches. And that can be found in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou saw on my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou saw are the seven churches. And where are they at? Where are these stars? In his right hand. And who does the church belong to? It belongs to Jesus. Look at, go with me, if you would, over to John chapter 10, speaking of the Lord's hand. The Gospel of John chapter 10 and verse 28. Say amen when you're there. John 10, 28. This is one of my favorite verses. And it says in John chapter 10, verse 28, um, it says, my, go 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of the Father's hand. No man. Amen? And I like to think of it this way. Um, who gave us to Jesus, according to that verse? The Father did, right? So the Father is giving, and Jesus is receiving, right? And then the Bible says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So if I'm in the Father's hand, putting it in Jesus' hands, you know, there is nothing that's going to get in between us, and we're also bound or sealed with the Holy Spirit. So nothing's going to get in there and pluck you out of His hands, amen? You are in His hands, and nothing shall pluck you out. Not even yourself. Praise God. Now, the Bible then begins, so we see that in Revelation, he says, they're in my right hand, all right? So that's a pretty cool verse for uh, the sec your security and your assurance of your salvation if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then he says, I know your works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are his what? Workmanship created for good works in Christ. Amen? Ephesians 2.10. Look at that with me real fast. I like to do a Bible workout here, get you through these scriptures. Ephesians 2.10. We are created for works, but we are not saved by works. Amen? We're created for works, but not saved by works. Ephesians 2.10. 10. Oh, let's start with verse 8. That's wonderful. Verse 8. For by grace are ye saved. All right? And remember that in the King James, anytime you see a pronoun that starts with a T, it is singular. If you see a pronoun that starts with a Y, it's plural. All right? So he is speaking to Many people here in verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the what? It's a gift. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I like that. I like the fact that God has ordained the works that we should do. All right? He's ordained a work for you. Say, God has a work for me. God has a work for me. He has ordained a work for us to do. We were created for that work. Amen? And so the Ephesians were doing that work. And he said, I know that you are laboring and you are patient. And that in the word labor there, it's like you're working, you're faithful, but you're weary. All right. And I love what George Whitfield said. He said, Lord, I am weary in thy work, but I'm not weary of thy work. And there's a big difference. I'm weary in the work, 
but I'm not weary of the work. And, that, and the ministry can be like that. The ministry can make you weary, but you cannot be um, bitter in the ministry. You cannot, let, you cannot let the work of the Lord make you hard towards the work, whether it be disappointment, whether it be rejection, whether it be you know, people resenting you, whether it be persecution. You know, we're going to see in these churches, you know, it's not a time to, to, to have thin skin. We have to have thick skin as Christians, especially in these latter days. But he said, I know your works. And he said, you've tried them which say they are apostles and they are not. We know that apostles, as a, as a, as a modern day word, would be a missionary, those that are sent out. So he gives us them all of this good news, but then he says this. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, and we saw last week, what does the one thing the Lord has against them? Just one thing. They've done a lot of good things, but this one thing they're lacking. Reminds me of what Jesus told that, that guy. Lord, what must I do to be saved? Uh, keep the commandments. He said, I've, all, I've done all these things. Lord, I've kept the commandments. And the Lord said, well, go and sell all that you have and follow me. And then the disciple, or the, the man, he just, he left. And it says he left, you know, with a heavy heart because he said he had kept all the commandments, but there's one commandment he hadn't kept. Thou shalt not covet. That's the one, one commandment the Lord didn't put in there. And so this one thing the Lord had against the, the Ephesians is they had lost their first love. And that first love, that means they've lost their, the protos, the, the prototype. That's where we get the word prototype. It's the superior love, the love that comes above all other things. All right? And so we can see an example of that. Go with me over to, uh, um, to the story of Mary and Martha. The story of Mary and Martha. And I'll tell you where that's at in just a second, if you don't know already. And uh, let's go to uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 42. Luke 10, 42. Luke 10, chapter 10, verse 42. Say amen if you're there. Praise God. Can I just get a hallelujah tonight, man? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right, 10, 42. And... Um, Let's start at verse 38. Now it came to pass, as they went and entered into a certain village, a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me here to serve all alone? 
bid her, therefore, that she help me, or tell her to get in the kitchen with me where she belongs. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha. Boy, when the Lord calls out your name twice, huh? He said, Martha, Martha. You know, it's very powerful when the Lord does that. When he called Samuel, he said, Samuel, Samuel. So let you think on that. Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful. There's just one thing. The first thing is needful. And she has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus is saying to Martha that the first love, the one thing that is most important that will not be taken from somebody is their love for Jesus. He wasn't going to tell he wasn't going to tell Mary to stop loving on him, to stop sitting at his feet and hearing his word. You know, to go scrub a few pans or maybe make sure the lasagna is not burnt. No, he said, and it's not going to be taken from her. And so sometimes we get so caught up in the things we do for Jesus, even the things that we do to facilitate him in the room ministering the word. And, you know, we get offended when people are, are choosing that part and they may not be in the kitchen with us. And, you know, it's interesting that if you feel like the Holy Spirit and you feel the peace of God and in that in the, you're serving the Lord and you're in the kitchen and that's where you feel like God has you, be in the kitchen and do it joyfully unto the Lord. But don't get mad at somebody who's not in the kitchen and they're in the sanctuary at the feet of Jesus. Neither... The Lord is not saying one is better than the other. Okay? He's just saying, I'm not going to put a division here where you're trying to put one. She's chosen the part, the one thing, she's hearing the word. Let her hear the word. I'm not going to tell her, excuse me, get in there and help do the dishes, would you, hon? I know you're sitting there. No, he's not going to do that. All right? And why is that? Because... She had an understanding of first love. And Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus, look, you guys are great preachers. You've driven out the false apostles. You've told them, called them liars who are liars, who tried to say that this is what Jesus, this is who Jesus is. People that came in and tried to say Jesus was not God, that he was just a, uh, a regular human being. All kinds of things were already creeping in the church. The first, you know, 50, 60 years after the Lord went to glory. They've done all these great things, but he said, man, you guys, you care more about the things you do for me than you do actually about me. And he says, you've lost your first love. And look what he says here. Remember, verse 5, remember therefore from whence you are fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except you repent. 
So he said, remember these words. And this is, the, this is like Christian first aid kit. If you feel cold, if you feel like your heart is cold towards the things of God, if you don't have that fire burning in your belly that you used to have when you first got saved, if you're not hungry to come to church, if you're watching on the internet right now and you feel like church is kind of boring, you feel like God's people are boring, you don't like to lift your hands in worship, you keep them clenched like a white knuckle flight on the front of the chair in front of you, you won't, you won't sing, you won't amen the preacher when he's preaching good, you won't stick around after church and say hi to people and love on one another. If this is you, this is what you need to do. You need to remember how you used to be. You need to repent. Then you need to return. And if you do not, the Lord will remove your witness from the earth. Now, I'm not going to say that he's saying that you won't be saved, but you will definitely, your light will be removed. Remember, candlestick, that is, the, that is like the actual, uh, what do we call that, Pastor? The menorah? Okay, the menorah, that is the lamp stand, which is the church, and the Holy Spirit is the lamps on the stand. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the light in us. Remember the day of Pentecost? It says the day of Pentecost fell and tongues of flame, a flame of fire sat what? Upon their heads, like a, like a candlestick, amen? He's the, he's, the, he's the light and we're the candlestick. So that's what we are in the world. And if we don't have that first love flowing through us, if we don't keep our priorities to Jesus and him alone, we will not be effective in the world to witness for Jesus. So remember that. Repent, or sorry, remember, repent, return, or else Jesus will remove. All right, three R's. That word return, I like to just keep my R's together there. I say that for where he says, do the first works. Do the first works. Return to the things that you used to do when you first got saved. If you've been saved for a long time, think about what the Lord was having you do when you were so on fire for him. The things that you used to do when you first got saved. Do those things again. Stir those things up. So that's the only thing he had against this church. We'll see he had much a lot of other things against other churches. But then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, But this thou hast, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. All right? I also hate. So Jesus is saying right here, I hate those deeds. What are these Nicolaitans? We'll see this throughout this book. If you read different commentaries, you're going to find probably one of three things. The first thing you're going to find is that we have no idea what these Nicolaitans, what the de we don't know what the deeds of the Nicolaitans are. All right. Um, another one thing you might find is that there was some, some commentators feel that this was a, a religious sect started by a guy named Nicholas. 
And what they used to teach was is that they teached a, a lascivious lifestyle. In other words, you could drink and party and go and have multiple partners and that that was okay and still be a Christian, a practicing Christian. And the reason why they justified that this was okay, multiple marriages, is because they said that the body and the spirit were separate. That the body, you know, whatever was happening in the body did not affect what was going on in the spirit. All right, and this was the early stages of Gnosticism, which we know is, is, an, is a lie. And so that's one of, the, one of the things that people might have thought they were teaching. And, um, but another, another thing you may, you'll find is that if you actually break that word down, Nicolaitans, um, Nikeo and laity, um, to rule or conquer the people. All right. And so um, a lot of Bible uh, teachers feel that this is the um, that this deed, which we'll see later on in Pergamos, actually becomes a doctrine. Right now, it's a deed. Later on, it becomes a doctrine. A lot of people feel that this is the start of the clergy where, you know, the, the ministers begin to have a a level that was higher than the common man. And Jesus hates it. Let me tell you why he hates it, all right? Turn with me over to, um, let's see, where are we going here? Go with me over to, um, Go with me to John 13. John 13, chapter 13. You know, the Lord has never separated the church into categories or tribes like He did Israel. In Israel... They had the Levites, who was formed the priesthood, and then they had Judah, and they had the different tribes. But if you were from that tribe of Judah, you could not be in, you could not be a priest if you were not from Levi. If you were not a Levite, you couldn't be a priest. That's not the case in the New Testament church. All right? We saw in Revelations chapter 1, verse 6, that the Lord has made us kings and priests. Amen? Each and every one of us are a king and a priest in the household of God. As a believer, that's what he's made us. It, you don't have to be a special, from a special family. You don't have to be from, you know, a particular class of people. You don't have to have a certain amount of money to be a priest. Um, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are blood washed and full of the Holy Ghost. You are a king and a priest. Amen. And Jesus paid, spilled his precious blood on the cross to make us kings and priests. And how dare a human being try to put on some other mandate or, or say you need a particular type of credential to make you any other way. 
Because what they're doing is they're spitting on the blood of Jesus when they do that. Jesus said, the blood of Jesus, a born-again believer, is a priest and a king. And so, and I'll tell you, he taught his disciples this too. And he taught them this in John chapter 13. Look what he says here in verse 14. John 13, 14. Uh, let's start at... Um, well, this is right after he washed their feet, all right? That's what's happening here. Um, and he, he, he had a foot washing ceremony. We had one not too, a while ago, Dan said, you know, we need to have a foot wash. And I remember back in the 70s, foot washing used to be pretty common. And uh, you don't really see that much anymore in church. You don't see a lot of foot washing. Never really saw a lot of these uh, Christian celebrities washing feet on TV. It's not happening. But the Lord did it, and He did it to make an example. And He did it because He hates the doctrine or the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He hates men putting themselves above people and saying that they have spiritual leadership or power over them. In verse 13, he's, before that he said, do you know what I've done to you? In other words, he's washed their feet. He says, you know why I've done this? Do you know why I've bowed down and washed the dirt out of your toenails and got the toe jam out of there? Huh? You know why I've done that? Because you call me master and Lord, verse 13, and you say, well, for I am. I am your master and I am your Lord. But if I then, your Lord and your master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you a what? An example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is that, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. So Jesus established the chain of command there, but he was saying that the chain of command, we humble ourselves. If you're a real spiritual person, you humble yourselves and to, where you get down on your knees and you wash a foot, all right? And, there, and it's, this can be, you know, the actual foot washing, or this can be in other things. But when God calls you to minister, don't ever think that he's called you to minister to take you above somebody. When God's calls you minister, he's actually called you to minister to take you beneath somebody. Amen? And so that's why Jesus set that example for us. Whoo, I feel the Holy Spirit. And he said, um, you know, he hates it. I just want you to get that in your spirit tonight. You know, the Lord hates it. You know, I hate it. I hate green rooms. I hate places where 
I remember when I first got saved, I was so on fire for the Lord. I mean, I'm on fire now, but I'm talking about, I was really like, oh man, nobody can do no wrong. You know, everybody's great. And I remember going to this church and you'd come out of the service and we were all feeling the Holy Ghost. We were just loving the Lord, serve, you know, singing songs. And then all of a sudden I see this little velvet, red velvet rope. And I thought, oh, well, I'll, I said, no, a couple people that's gone in there, you know. I'm going to go in there and say hi, you know, tell them, hey, I really appreciate that service, brother. And man, as I, as, as I got ready to go into that room and I got to cross that velvet rope, man, this big old guy stiff-armed me and said, you're not allowed in here. I was like, what? And man, I felt like hey, he was a bouncer at Roxy's or something, you know. I mean, I was just like, what the heck's going on here? And so, you know, so he's like, you're not allowed in here. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. Coffee smells pretty good back there. And I just kind of moseyed on. And, and, and it just kind of left an impact on me. You know, when we get to this place, you know, and I know, you know, hey, I get it. People got to have sometimes, you know, ministers or people that want to, you know, just they got to be away from the crowd for a little bit so they can get their mind right before they go into a service. Hey, I'm all good with that. But the service was over, man. Service was over. We were already in a good mood. Jesus, the Holy Spirit had showed up. Now you're going to like, you know, go get all, you know, VIP on me? Come on, man. Come on. There ain't no VIP. We're all kings and priests. Amen. Them guys behind that red velvet rope were no more a king and a priest than I was. Hallelujah. I wanted a bagel and some coffee. Sheesh. I'm a king and a priest. Cut me some slack. So it's just this idea. And you know, if you've been a Christian for more than, uh, you know what I'm talking about, you know. And, you know, it's just not, it's not on, man. And so, and Jesus hates it. That's the bottom line. That's the lesson that we need to learn about it. Jesus hates it. All right, back to the text in Revelation. Almost done with this letter tonight. We will get done with Ephesians, I promise. All right, so that's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, all right? Now, while you're there real quick, shimmy down to, um, shimmy down to verse 12. And this is Pergamos here. I just want to show you that what was a deed later on in Pergamos, where they where was the infancy of the papacy, it became a doctrine. Verse 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and once again, which thing I hate. All right, so what was once a deed, if you don't put it in check, turns into a doctrine. Amen? Amen. And later on, it even goes, once we get the Thyatira and the full age of the Dark Ages, that doctrine just turn, sh turn the world upside down for about a thousand years. So that's why Jesus hates it. He hates it, and we should hate it. Now, verse 7, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And to him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right? Who overcomes? How do we overcome? 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Amen. And what does 1 John tell us? It says, this is how we overcome even by our what? Faith. Faith is how we overcome. You know, a lot of people that have struggled the last few years or maybe the last 20 years, a lack of faith is the problem. What makes a church weak is a lack of faith. And what makes a church have a lack of faith is a lack of this Bible. Amen? A lack of this Bible. There's just too many PowerPoints being displayed and not enough Bible. You know, I'm tired of seeing PowerPoint in church. You know, we need to get our, our fingerprints and, and get the coffee stains back over the Bible like it used to be, where the, where the pages are being ripped, where, 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 where you hear all you hear in the church is people flipping through the scriptures instead of some silly PowerPoint on a screen where they may just have a verse sprinkled in here or there. And we're looking at all their bullet points and their fancy uh, wisdom and, and, and man's words. Paul said, I didn't come to you in fancy uh, wisdom of words, but I came to you in power and in demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And how, do you, how was Paul able to come in power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost? Because Paul had faith. And why did Paul have faith? Because Paul had the word. When Paul was in prison, he didn't say, hey, Timothy, make sure you don't forget my laptop and that PowerPoint presentation. No, he said, Timothy, bring me the scrolls. Bring me the parchments. Bring me the word. Timothy, don't forget my Bible. Hey, Paul, do you want your overcoat? Yeah, that's fine, but don't forget my Bible, Timothy, whatever you do. Don't forget my Bible. The B-I-B-L-E, don't leave home with, without it, man. You've heard me say many times in the Jesus movement when the Holy Ghost was, was so, it was massive. People would walk into Denny's, man, with family Bibles and they'd slap them on the coffee table. They weren't ashamed of the Holy Bible. They weren't ashamed. Big giant uh, sword like Braveheart, a Braveheart sword, you know, slap that on the table. Now the church wants to carry a little pen knife they can shove in their back pocket. Nobody can see it. Hey, if I'm going to war, I want to go to war with a two-handed sword, not a nail file. Amen? Amen. So here's the thing. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and by our faith. And our faith comes by hearing the word. And if we do that, it says, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life. Now, we know the tree of life appears in the scriptures a couple of times. It appears at the beginning of the book. And it appears at the end of the book. All right. Go to Revelations 22 real fast. And this is our last topic. And I'm closing. Revelation 22. Um, talking about the tree of life here. 22, verse 2. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. All right? And then shimmy down to verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. Blessed are those people that have the right to touch the tree of life. All right? Now, what's happening there? Right now, that tree of life is being guarded by angels. Go over to Genesis chapter 2. There's no access to this tree at the moment. There used to be access till Adam and Eve decided to let Satan have power over the earth. And God put up a guard. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree was pleasant for food and to look at. And then it says, The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then over in chapter 3, verse 22, let's read that. Chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And this is after Adam and Eve were, you know, they, they listened to the devil. They didn't believe what God said. Remember, Satan's always trying to get you and the world to not believe what God has said. That's the first thing that came out of the serpent's mouth. Hath God said? Question mark. And the first thing that should have came out of Eve's mouth was, yes, God said, exclamation mark. But she didn't. That's not what she did. And so, verse 22 of chapter 3, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. What would have happened if Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life? According to verse 22, they would have lived forever, but they knew evil. You see, God was not going to tolerate man to be sinful and live forever. Okay? Can you imagine if, if a rapist or a thief or a murderer, and that's what they were and who they were, or an abuser lived forever with no consequence? God in his mercy is not going to let that happen. You see, the very fact that God pronounced death on Adam and Eve actually was an act of mercy. The torment of a person to have to live in a sinful condition for eternity. 
So what God did was, is he put an angel around this, it says. In verse 24, he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to what? Keep the way of the tree of life. All right? So those that overcome have access to the tree of life that they may live forever. You want to live forever? You got to know the person that planted the tree. Amen? You got to know the gardener to get to the tree. Amen? And that gardener, his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth and heaven. And he came down to this earth and he suffered on a cross and he died a criminal's death because I was a criminal and so were you. And he died the death of a, of a criminal that we might have his righteousness. And the God proved that we could have that righteousness. He proved that we could no longer have to be afraid of dying when he raised Jesus from the dead. And three days later, he come up out of that tomb and he showed the world that he is the Savior. And that's why if you put your trust in the fact that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead, you can have access to that tree of life and you shall never, ever, ever die. The Bible promises you that, amen. And this is what truly is an overcomer. Praise God. Thank you, Pastor.